This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. If you ever wanted to take charge of your life or take charge of a group of people, a team, a cause, or an organization, eventually you need to understand your relationship to leadership. More specifically, who are you as a leader? What do you stand for? What is your core philosophy of being a leader? Where are you skillful or not? And do you have both the internal mindset and the external chops to lead in the current situation, climate, or the outcomes that you desire to create? Staring into that mirror through the lens of leadership, inevitably you are often faced with the question, who am I? Answering that question can be both enlightening and difficult to answer in a meaningful way. But whatever or however you do answer that question says a lot about the identity you hold of yourself. And your identity will directly and powerfully shape your beliefs, your intention, and your actions every single day. Perhaps even more important question than who am I is who do I choose to be? And my guest today is one leader that has taken a deep dive into exploring the choices of leadership. She is Margaret Wheatley. Margaret has dedicated her life's work to prompting and provoking leaders to think more, elevate more, and become more. For over five decades now, Margaret has helped people wrestle with a very difficult dilemma, how to maintain their integrity, motivation, and effectiveness as they cope with the relentless upheavals and rapid shifts of today. Since 1992, with her breakthrough book, Leadership and the New Science, Margaret has been a relentless voice, an asker of important questions, and expertly creating the space for you to rethink your approach to leading yourself and the people you are called to serve. I think you'll enjoy both the wise perspective and the practical suggestions throughout this episode. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Margaret Wheatley. For 50 years, Margaret has been a consultant, advisor, speaker, and formal leader, inspiring people to use their power and influence and willing to step forward to serve in challenging times. Her consistently thought-provoking work and views summon us to reclaim leadership and create sanity in an increasingly troubling climate in our communities, cultures, and businesses. Her clients and audience range from the head of the U.S. Army to 12-year-old Girl Scouts, from CEOs and government ministers to small-town ministers, and from large universities to rural Aboriginal villages. Through her interdisciplinary curiosity, Margaret continues to provide new insights into the nature of how people interact and inspires us to build better organizations and better societies. Her unwavering and decades-long commitment to influencing leaders earned her the Lifetime Achievement Award and an induction into the Leadership Hall of Fame by the International Leadership Association. The author of more than 100 articles and nine award-winning books, including her latest, Who Do You Choose to Be? She is what the American Society for Training and Development calls a true living legend. Margaret, it's a great honor to spend time with you today. Welcome to The Ignition Show. Well, I'm happy to be with you. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, and as I mentioned to you just off, off air here, that I, I came across your website last year. I don't know how I got there, but I immediately saw the headline that you had on your site of, of creating warriors for the human spirit. And I knew I wanted to reach out to you and have that conversation, very much aligned to the, the essence and the purpose of my business. But I wanted to start with um, your understanding of what is a warrior for the human spirit and why are they needed at this time? Well, let's talk first our shared view or difference in what is the human spirit. What's happening today in this uh, global culture is it's 
easy in the face of overwhelming chaos and negative evidence, it's easy to forget that people can be creative, generous, and kind, that we really care about each other, we really care about making a difference. So that's where I start is how can we how can we promote and help people remember what it is to be a good human being, one who is committed to a a cause, works with integrity, um, and is very focused on creating healthy relationships. So I coined this phrase warriors for the human spirit with some hesitation because warrior has such a mm. historically negative warlike you know, connotation to it. But as I looked for other words, um, there really was nothing else that describes the level of discipline and dedication and commitment mm. that warriors have had throughout history. They're always a small group. This is I'm not trying for any mass movements. I don't think the world changes through mass movements anyway. But are there enough people who realize what's going on as leaders who are completely not only overwhelmed with work and meaningless tasks, but really feeling the weight of, of this society disintegrating while they're still engaged in trying to do good work and make a difference? Those people, I now work with several hundred of them in long-term training, but they are already leaders and they don't have the necessary skills. They have a lot of skills. They have the skills that I used to teach as well as many, many others did of high engagement strategies, participative leadership, how you sponsor innovation and participation, all of those things. Many of us spent 30 years teaching and developing and working inside organizations. But now the challenges that leaders face are quite different. Um, we're in such a fear-based, anxiety-driven culture now with, with horrific uh, things happening in the natural environment and I would say in the political environment. So how does one lead from principle? How does one lead from integrity? Well, you need a new set of skills, and that's what warrior training is about. And the last thing I'll say about it is that choosing the word warrior from the Tibetan perspective, it's one who is brave. Mm. And, of course, we have in native, our translation of native warriors is they're braves. So I think that's worth contemplating. But this is a, a courageous step forward with for leaders who are still seeking to make a difference, still seeking to make a contribution and have their eyes wide open about how hard it is. So that's yeah. why we have warriors for the human spirit. I appreciate the distinction there. And you're right, certainly historically warrior comes with a, a, a fighting kind of thing. But what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is really a, it's fighting for good. It's fighting for the right causes. And uh, it doesn't have to be necessarily a quote unquote fight, but sometimes it, may, it might. Yeah. But it is, a, well, it is preparing to battle for what's right. Let me say it's a struggle, mm. and it's important to realize that in many cases it is a battle um, and of monumental proportions. However, we take a vow to refrain as best we can from using fear or aggression to accomplish our, 
our goals. So we are peaceful warriors. This is in the yes. tradition. Many, uh, I mean, there are many other traditions that use terminology like peaceful warriors or spiritual warriors. I'm yeah. focused on people, so it's the human spirit we're speaking of. Yeah. You mentioned um, in what you're describing there is it's also part of that is to promote and remind people to be good humans. And um, I agree we That's need more. That's the essence of it. That's it right yeah, there. Yeah. And so it uh, kind of makes me, makes me want to ask you from your, your, your vast experience, how did we forget to be good humans? What are the well? What's you know, interesting. What's what's really interesting, Chris, is that every human civilization follows the exact same pattern of of birth, growth, blossoming, uh, harvesting, and then winter descends and the civilization falls apart. And I was really struck, because my field is leadership and organizations, that humans are good, and this is both historical and also um, the anthropological record, we're very good and kind when we're in community. So when we start with a clan group or we start with um, our people, we're very good. And leadership is participative, women are as... Uh, center as men in leadership duties and leadership is very dispersed all the things we've aspired to to get it past bureaucracy in the past decades however once we grow to a certain size we 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 organize hierarchically this was a stunning revelation to me since i've spent most of my life trying to work to create self-organized systems that are not so hierarchical, but we do that. It's in our DNA. And out of that hierarchy, we create the same kinds of institutions. We always create, wherever you look at human societies, we create courts of law, we create infrastructure, irrigation systems, farming systems. We create, uh, obviously, places of worship. Most of them are, are religiously based. We create... Um, systems of transportation, roadways. It's quite interesting to see that this is truly what I would call the DNA of how we organize as humans. Once, once you get into hierarchy, then you get into some people are better than others. People are used as slaves or chattels, and no one pays attention to the masses. And over time, elites take everything for themselves. It becomes very patriarchal and very controlling, over-bureaucratized. This is just history that I'm reciting now. It's not an opinion at all. And so we always have to struggle at the end of a civilization when it's become overly bureaucratized and overly complex, and the systems can no longer deliver the services they were set up to do. We always become brutal and we always become self-serving and selfish. And that's why the need is always for a few people, and this is a historical fact as well, a few people rise up and just say, no, we're going to embody, in one quotation I used from a British historian, he said, there are always a few people who raise the banner of duty and service against the degradation 
of their time. So uh, there's, uh, in order for me to undertake this work, which I've now been doing for many years, well, not that long, maybe five years, I've been actively training leaders to be warriors for the human spirit, but it's within this historical context. Can we be the, you know, it's like the Marines, the few, the brave, mm. the bold. It makes who, me think who of actually it. stand for something yes. and realize that as we stand up for people in our organizations as leaders, as we uh, do not go along to get along, but instead we realize what's happening to people in these systems where they're just discardable commodities, you know, decided upon with numeric measures. Um, it's it's really an important historical role. It's deeply familiar in every civilization. So as the masses forget and they're driven to greed and fear and self, self-protection, which a lot of leaders are fomenting right now, but there are always these few leaders who stand up and say no. This, this is not right, and this is how I choose to lead. And that's why I'm talking to leaders now about creating islands of sanity, places where the human spirit can still thrive. You make me think of the Margaret Mead quote. Um, yes. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And uh, I agree with you. It needs to start somewhere. And when I've been in groups and organizations with leaders, you know, often one of the biggest... Um, I guess, challenges or maybe barriers that leaders throw, throw out to the conversation is, well, you know, this is all some version of, this is all fine and good, everything we're learning here. I really won't believe this will make a difference, but <laughs> my manager or my leader isn't here yeah. and isn't buying in or isn't, isn't on board. Exactly. And so I often describe, well, you have to start with what I would call your sphere of influence. Own, That's right. own That's your good. team, own how you run your meetings and lead your projects and, and grow your people. Um, and that's what you can control. And if that makes 10% difference to you yourself and to your team, then that's a 10% difference. Um, and hopefully it'll, it'll certainly lead to more. I absolutely support that. I mean, any of us who've done any kind of training with leaders always have the experience you just described that the right people aren't here, you know, and at one level, I mean, I say now I've been saying for years, don't pay any attention to the leaders above you. They've got their own dilemmas, challenges, and craziness going. Just pay attention. I use the phrase sphere of influence also. Um, where, how can you create an island here that is, separates itself from the, the general turbulent sea, which is filled with insanity and life-destroying policies and, and, and constant change the VUCA world that we're all familiar with, how can you create a stable place where you can motivate people in the right ways, you know, that we used to do maybe at a larger level of scale, but we don't have that capacity anymore. So now I, I you know, I'm known as a systems thinker, and I really did work in very large systems like the U.S. Army um, and the National Park Service as well as very big corporations. And what's possible now is only appealing to those leaders who are willing to take a stand. Yes, 
It's up to you now. And it's not, I mean, I've loved the Margaret Mead quote for a long time, but for me, it's no longer that we're the small group that is going to change the world. I want us to recognize that the larger world has its own momentum and it's very destructive. But what we can do with it, with our leadership, this is why my book is a question, who do you choose to be? You have to make a conscious choice of how you're going to use your power and influence, whatever scale you have with your system of influence. And it's a conscious choice to be different, to be a, a wise, engaging leader, as we used to have more of them, now we have fewer of them, to not use aggression, to not promote things through fear, even though the greater society is filled with that and it's growing. And who do you choose to be for this time? And I hope that enough of us choose to be the best leaders we can be. And that means honoring people's capacity and creating places, structures, organizational structures that people can remember what it's like to work well together, can be creative, can be innovative. But it is an island mentality now that we just have to do what we, I use Teddy Roosevelt's quote a lot, do what you can, where you are with what you have. Mm. And I would add to that with the people in front of you. <laughs> Lovely. So. I wanted to get into your book, uh, certainly the, the question, who do you choose to be? And I know you've been speaking about that for a few years now and posing that question to leaders. I'm very curious, what kind of I guess, what's the initial response you get from people or how do they wrestle with that question? What's, what's kind of the, the reaction you get when you're in front of a group or yeah. sitting around the table with leaders and ask that question? Well, I'm very glad you asked that question. And since I've been posing this question and the times have been increasingly darkening and frustrating for leaders and so many leaders have just withdrawn, so many people are withdrawn now from what's going on, it's their coping mechanism. But what I find is that there are enough of us as leaders who find this call to action, a call to a higher integrity, to a higher morality. I call it noble leadership at this point. I'm getting more and more people genuinely interested in this because, you know, if you have any uh, motivation left, and here we can talk about ignition. If you have any motivation left to want to make a difference, this is how you now make a difference. You become a leader who is, is outstandingly different in his or her dedication to people and creating healthy work environments that have to be you know, protected from the general turbulence that's out there. I'm finding more and more people will listen to me and just say, this is really inspiring. And I realized I'm giving them the opportunity to think about what is meaningful leadership now. And it's not the old ways. It's not what I used to teach for 40 years or so. It's can we be there as warriors for the human spirit? because the human spirit is under siege. So is the spirit of life with the planet. So who do we choose to be? And once you realize you have choice, that's inspiring in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then you have to make a, a decision. Some people don't make a decision. They just feel their heart leap out of their chest and say, yes, 
that's who I choose to be. A lot of activists describe their shift into activism as accidental, like they couldn't not do it. That's a very popular phrase among very brave activists. And I feel that way about leaders now. You have to realize, are you in it for yourself and your own career and your own benefit, or are you in it for a higher purpose? And that purpose is serving people when everything around us is is working in a very destructive way. Yeah, and, and I know you mentioned um, the, we've been talking around for, for probably a decade, 15 years or so of the VUCA world, the volatile, uncertain, complex ambiguity. Uh, it's been a, a kind of a, a, a certainly a theme it, in the leadership it, circles it and conversations. It seems like a mild definition. It, it does. It does right? <laughs> I, think, I think your simplicity of insanity might capture what better. But I want to ask you kind of two questions around there. Um, one is, I suppose, when that kind of really first emerged into um, in the business world, organizational world uh, of the challenges. And, I, you know, I started speaking a lot to leaders just over 10 years ago. And I've, I've seen some of your talks from around the same time about what we need to be doing in this space. And I guess my question would be from this lens of now we're in 2020, 10 plus years of living in this, um, do you see the, the VUCA and the insanity getting even more VUCA and in, insane? And- uh, I would say now I'm going to call it VUCA squared. Yes. Because, I mean, I've been labeled the queen of chaos when I first started speaking about chaos and complexity science, which was from 1992 on. So that's, you know, a long time ago now, 28 years of of trying to come to terms with how do you lead in a chaotic environment. Now, most people did not accept that it was chaotic and they thought command and control would still is still the choice. And what happened after 9-11, I think it was a very dramatic shift that leaders became so scared that they took back all decision-making power. I had a senior exec at Intel who said that after 9-11, they were so scared because they, they had no sense of a future. I mean, planning o- over 90 days was, they gave up strategic planning. Many corporations did for a while. And he said, we took back, we had the senior executive team had was told to, that they had the decision-making authority even for anything over $5,000. And, you know, that's in, in Intel uh, context is just ridiculous. Yeah. So what the world is now, what I see is that it used to be that time period where command and control ascended and all the work on high engagement just disappeared or participative leadership just, just disappeared in most places. But now with this level of what, which I feel justified in saying, it's, it's exponentially different what we're facing now. How do, you, uh, how do you work with natural disasters? You know, if you're in insurance, well, they're refusing to insure homes in California now or in Britain for floods. How do we respond to... Um, these things over which we truly have no control. And I would include politics in that. We seem to be very powerless these days, no matter how hard we protest or 
make our voices known. So what's happening inside organizations to the employees is a complete, I, I just have to speak in rather absolute terms here, a complete withdrawal from wanting to participate. This was going on for the past 15 years, but now it's acute. Nobody wants to talk to each other. <clears throat> you talk about participation. People are already overworked. They're not going to take on more work. And you um, have this growing fear and anxiety where people are just getting sick. So we're in a very different world now. And here's comes the good news. People are still people. The human spirit is still alive in people. And that's where I think it's the responsibility of leaders as warriors for the human spirit to create the conditions for people to work together for something they care about. And, and if it's at the right level of scale, which is local, then people will see, oh, we can make a difference. We can create change at this level of scale. And wow, it's really good to be working together past all the craziness and the hurling of blame that's, so, that's going on. This is why increasingly I think leaders need to attend to scale and what is really within our influence because that's how you reawaken people's human spirits by giving them work they care about with a team where everyone is engaged. And that's that's countering the forces of that are so destructive that are driving us apart. Our fear, our conflict, our othering of, of the stranger. So I increasingly feel that going local is the only solution here. The other part of the um, LaVuca decade that we've been gone, gone, gone through, the certain the direct consequence, um, again, could be simplified down to the word burnout. <clears throat> and um, it is it, it really is an epidemic, uh, quite literally, by the World Health Organization now. And, and I know sometimes organizations, and I suppose leaders, see burnout, how the people are feeling as a, as a physical well-being thing. Some people take more of an emotional well-being thing. How do you see burnout and, and what do leaders really need to wake up to to ensure that the people, their people don't suffer, therefore the business suffers? Well, first of all, you have to focus on the people suffering rather than the business suffering because the business will improve if the people are reengaged. We know that. I mean, there's so much evidence for that. So the work really is to focus on creating a healthy work environment, which I will continue to call an island of sanity. And it's more than burnout. I mean, it is emotional. It's physical. It's mental. It's energetic. It's spiritual. This culture, which is global now, um, destroys people. I mean, look at the suicide rates. Look at the fact that um, um, age of death in America now is decreasing. People are dying sooner because, primarily because of white male suicides. And then we have this horrific problem of youth suicide, which is increasing exponentially, where the age of children who who take their own lives is down to about eight years old in some places, even here in Utah, the concern. So we have to look at, for me, the overall context here is that things are out of control and people know that. Things are going down and people know that. 
and people are separated from the very source of um, possibility, which is good relationships. You know, I, one of my slogans is humans can get through anything as long as we're together. And so the fact that we're going through this terrifying time and we are separated, we're in conflict, we can't even speak to each other, we're not interested in it. Um, and and any time you do speak, you get attacked from some, some view, some version of identity politics. So that's why you find the right size here. This is, I could call it right size leadership maybe. <laughs> Um, where you still have the possibility of gathering people together to do good work that they care about. And each of those is an essential condition. has to be work we care about, and it has to be with others, and it has to have a leader to really start this and hold it together and have a greater vision. I think leadership, that's, and no hesitation in saying that leadership is a noble profession. If you're thinking in this way as a warrior for the human spirit, the burnout is not personal at this level. For me, it's a whole culture at the end of its life that is, uh, has no meaning in it except self-preservation. But so we have to create these islands where meaning is abundant and where relationships are healthy and where people actually remember what it's like to work together well. And it's, uh, it always strikes me when I'm in a, say a workshop setting and, and it is a small, small act of getting people away from sitting in, you know, traditional kind of hotel setup, maybe a table of six or a table of four, whatever it may be, and just get people to either stand in a circle together or sit in a circle together. It's remarkable how often someone will just pipe in at the end of that session and just say, it's so nice to connect to people with, uh, connect with each other as humans. That's and, right. and it's a small, small act. And it's, it's, whether it's creating these um, islands of sanity if someone is, is is listening to this conversation, and let's say they're a let's say they're a you know a mid level leader in a large organization of whatever size that might mean to them, and they've been kind of running on fumes for a while, and they're resonating with the conversation of they need to do something different, not worry about what's going on above them, but they need to do something for themselves and their people around them. Where would you start if you were sitting around a table with them, or maybe sitting in a circle with them? Um, how to create those conditions? How does a leader create the conditions? For someone to, or for their team, to step into their full potential and to get more, to enable to empower their people more. Well, of course, you've introduced a very big topic. And I'm grateful for it. The first act I would take is to simply gather people together with a question I've used forever is, what were you hoping to accomplish when you came to work here? And go back to this well of meaning and these memories. And then from that, uh, and those are conversations where we really understand one another and see the humanity in each other. And we see this great level of aspiration. No matter what the work is, people, you know, especially in corporations, they have greater deeper motivation than this was just a good, good paycheck, or this was just 
down the road and it was easy to get to or someone offered me a job. I mean, we're always seeking to make meaning of why we're doing something. So you can use this. This is a dynamic of living systems in humans, the search for meaning. So we all will come up with reasons of what I was hoping to accomplish when I came here. And then another conversation is to find out, so what is a issue here that we all really care about? What are, This is where you have to be careful because it can become a blame session, a sob session where you ask people to name the issues. But one of the processes I've used a lot is something called prouds and sorries. And you start with the prouds. Now, this has moved into something called appreciative inquiry or strength-based analysis. These are all good things. Um, but what are we proud of here? Tell a story of something we did or you did within this team that you're really proud of. Again, we're trying to really focus on the genuine positive. This is not fake, but this is to get people into their human spirits and this desire to contribute and to be generous and, and uh, learn how to do things. That's the human spirit. In the prouds and sorries, you, you have people tell stories of things they accomplished that they're proud of. And then after that, what are we sorry for? What are, you know, some of the things we're just sad that we didn't do or that went wrong. But you have you stay out of the the blame game, which is very important to stay away from. And then out of that, you start to develop a sense of, okay, what would we like to work on? And that's easy these days. You just wait for the next crisis. <laughs> And then when you're in this crisis situation, something went wrong, a new policy came down, something really bad just happened. You gather people together to use it as a learning situation, not to find blame. One of the most powerful diagnostic questions I can offer to any organization is to look at how do we behave when something goes wrong? Because right there, you see all the dynamics. You see hierarchy, you see power, you see history, you see fear, you see possibility. So if you just, again, this needs to be a, in a circle process. We're trying to bring people together. You do not interview people individually anymore. That just doesn't work. Just reifies people's opinions. But if you're sitting with your team or with a group, and there are a lot of processes for doing this, even in large groups. Uh, the World Cafe is a wonderful process. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff out there. We just have to have the guts to use it. And we are calling people together. But if you're in the pr uh, question of what do we do when something goes wrong, there's only one right answer, which is can we gather together and learn from it? So that's why in building a team and building capacity in re-engaging people so they find meaning in their work, all of that which leads to great business outcomes. No doubt about that. Um, you want to become every failure, every thing that goes wrong, you don't want to blame, you want to learn from it. And, and I've seen this happen now over and over again. It works like a charm. 
Like you and as you're put- as you're as you're stating those questions, I'm having multiple point points of uh, flashbacks to different groups I've been with, and I can see how those those um, those three simple questions or three simple steps. The uh, what were you hoping to accomplish? What's an issue we all care about? Prouds and sorries, and and then the, how do we behave when something goes wrong? I can see how that could be a really really um, create a conversation that just is not happening. And a, and a very, very healthy way of almost feels like a, a turning point in some ways for a group to engage in that kind of a conversation versus our KPIs and our numbers and what's the fire we need oh, to put out today. Oh, gosh, yes. And you are in your own leader mind. You are consciously doing this to create an island. You're not you don't let the conversation go beyond what they need to do or what this, you know, this policy change needs to happen. That's not it. We're truly together because we're, we're on this island and we're doing our very best to, to do great work, good work together um, as humans have done. And it's in opposition to all the craziness that's circling around us, all the sharks and the, in the water out beyond the island, all the turbulence, all the tsunamis that suddenly hit. Yeah, this for me is the only solution right now for a VUCA squared world. It seems to me as I've, if we step back and kind of look at, you know, maybe a, a too, too grand of an aspiration right here, but look at the, the whole body of work that you've done in your, in your career. It certainly is a, uh, appears to me that one of the hallmarks of your approach and your style is asking really thought-provoking, caring questions. And I've heard you say that asking people to think is, is an act of courage. My, right. my, my experience has been, I uh, used to do some, a program and, and would ask leaders the question, how many of you would say that you don't spend enough time thinking strategically, creatively, or reflectively? And without a doubt, the average answer, the average would be about 85% of leaders are saying, I don't do that enough. I don't think enough. So my right. response is always, so if you're not thinking, who is? Um, but what kind of, my question is, what kind of thinking do you see as greatly needed by leaders? I would say any quality thinking is needed. <laughs> Start by somewhere. Seriously. Right? <laughs> seriously, it's just, we don't, we, we have sold our souls by giving up time to think. Because when you don't think about what's happening, if you don't try and get a sense of the whole of what's happening, if you don't um, consciously want to see it from another perspective and give yourself time to think about a situation or a crisis, um, all you do is you go into default function and that default function includes is just based on your own biases and your own prejudices and your own history and it doesn't work so when you said 85 percent say they don't have enough time to think i started asking that question probably in the year 2000 like how much time i would ask for a quantity how much time do you spend in thinking with your teammates? And people just laughed. So in 2000, I, they laughed. 2000. Before and email and social media and texting and instant messaging and everything else. Exactly. 
thinking requires time. So that's, and then when I, because I say this is for me, the Wheatley cure-all in organizations, create regular times to think together as a staff group. And, and people's immediate response is, well, that sounds great, but we don't have time. And I go, I rest my case. Right. It's like, it's, gonna, like, it's like the old adage of if you don't have 10 minutes to meditate, then you shouldn't be meditating for an hour. Right. Um, so if we just but, got really, really practical here for a second, again, for, for a leader that's, uh, that's listening to this, what, what have you seen, what, what, you know, to create that time to think, is that literally blocking an hour in the calendar to go get away from your desk or to sit around a circle and talk? Like, what would that look like if someone was really, really so buried under their emails, they don't know how to even how to begin. If you had to kind of spell it out for them, what would you say? Well, you just spelled it out. You have, this is a discipline. This is something you have to do because it, otherwise it doesn't happen. And even when staff groups set up regular times to think maybe it's an hour a week or maybe it's half a day a month or a full day a quarter, those are, I think, minimal requirements, but um, it slips away. You know, suddenly there's a crisis, so we don't meet. Then we get too busy and we don't meet. And we go back and we get real sentimental saying, yeah, those were really good when we could think through things together. But then what happened to it? So it's a con it needs to be a priority. And the reason it needs to be it's an easy priority for a leader once you've experienced it, once you have set in motion regular times for people to gather together and think, you will see the following benefits. People become smarter. They solve problems <laughs> together. Um, people get to know each other, so you build a much better team. And and the big, the big uh, unusual benefit is time changes. I've worked with so many people as individuals and as teams that because they are thinking together, they get more work done and they don't burn out because these are meaningful sessions. The only challenge for leaders is starting them and staying committed to them. So you first start them, people say, I can't come. You insist, this is where I think authoritative leadership is a necessity. You have people come, you give them refreshments, you have it be, you know, not at a long formal table, um, informal setting, and, but with a good process to hold a conversation. And then you'll see that people are magnetized to it. They just look forward to this and it becomes a priority for them. And then you have to watch as the leader, or is it slipping away from us because of external changes? It, it's truly the cure-all. And I used to feel stupid to say, you know, in front of a large audience, uh, we need to think. We need to restore thinking. But I don't feel stupid anymore saying it. I just feel this is what we need to pay attention to. You know, when I put a book title, Who Do You Choose to Be? I was introducing consciousness, choice. You can't just continue to survive. I mean, you can survive, but you won't do anything good as a leader if you're just constantly reacting. So making choices takes time. Growth takes 
time, thinking takes time, and yet the results are astonishing. So we've just got this all wrong right now, and it's a personal choice, a personal commitment now to set up times to think at the individual level, you can find an hour a week as a leader. You can use time driving, just have nothing else going on. Don't be on the phone, don't be listening to an audiobook. just be thinking, and you can give yourself questions you wanna think about every week. You know, what happened? What did I learn? What do I need to be paying attention to? But once you start this, your mind really cooperates. And the moment you settle down, a different quality of mind comes back on. I find this to be very true. So. Yeah, I, I again, as you're saying all that, I, I reflect on the variety of conversations I've had over the years. And I agree with you that uh, one of the biggest pushbacks to everything you just said is that that conflict of time or that or someone might perceive as a conflict of time. I've got so much to do. How do I not do in order to get in order to have thinking time? And it makes me think that, you know, there can be there's always someone in that organization or, or someone else in the company that is doing that. So it is possible. But people just need, kind of need to unwire some of the um, the disempowering ways that they're looking at their own time, their own calendar, their, their, their workload, et cetera. And it, it makes me think that they, if they were to, to take on your advice, it's a bit of acting with a bit of faith. And um, then that, that, that uh, leads me to you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about was- I, I want to I challenge that. It's not faith. We're just deceiving ourselves if we think that at the current way we're working, the pace of it, the amount of it, if if we think we're going to develop, grow, contribute as this frantic pace increases, that's just a lot of self-deception. Mm, I appreciate uh, that challenge, yeah. Really, it's just self-deception. Now, I often ask people, if I'm trying to get them inspired to start to think again, um, you know, we're the only species on the planet that doesn't, respond to its environment. We think we can just do what the hell we please. So uh, this is actually just called sane adaptation behavior. <laughs> However, what I ask people to do is to think back three years ago. What were their relationships like then? And what are their relationships like now? What are their relationships at home? With, with friends and with work colleagues. And then I asked them to look back three years, what was your level of anxiety or fear then? And what is it now? And um, what is the sense of meaning in your life now compared to some time in the past? Because this is how I'm striving to have people focus on the consequences of not taking time to think. We don't take time for relationships. And as you mentioned, all the ways we are now communicating through text, WhatsApp, social media are so destructive of building relationships. We need to notice this. And, and this is a responsibility as a leader to, to own the problem and there is a solution, and that solution is finding regular times to think together 
and personally to find that. And I would even go one step further, say not just finding it, but but having to create it, proactively creating it. Definitely, um, definitely. And uh, again, in, in my experience with um, you know getting people in a room, getting them away from their computers, having a workshop or training session or coaching engagement in some way, sometimes just that 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 space automatically does create some thinking. And often what people will say at the end of a session, maybe they came into the session kind of wrestling with a, a certain challenge or having some sort of inner conflict uh, related to, you know, it, whether it might be operating the business or, or achievement or whatever it may be. They often walk away saying, oh, I feel like if they feel like they've taken a, a big exhale, they've kind of unwound from the, all the stuff that's keeping them tense. And they might express something along the lines of, I feel like I have some hope for you know things changing and i know you i want to bring that up because i know you have a particular point of view on on hope and um and can you just t t talk to us a little bit about your view of hope and maybe maybe there are there different ways of seeing things beyond hope yeah yeah well and you just gave evidence of the power of taking time to just <laughs> downshift and just have a little time with other people. I mean, we all have this in our experience. So, so the problem with hope is that it's always accompanied by fear. This is the dynamic that's true in any living system. You go for one thing and you get the opposite. So you go for the good thing, like you want a lot of praise, you want to be noticed and respected. Well, you're just opening yourself up for criticism and blame. And the same is true with hope. It's opposite is always present, which is fear. The way to think about this is anytime you've invested a lot in a project, anytime you've really hoped for a certain outcome and worked very hard for it, and then it was either defunded or events came in and it became irrelevant or something happened to it and it was no longer this great work. What did you feel? Most of us feel despair or anger or disappointment. That shows you this marriage of hope and fear. What I know is sustainable is to work beyond hope and fear to understanding that I'm doing this work because it's the right work. It needs to be done. And I use the quote from the Czech leader Václav Havel who said that hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something is worth doing no matter how it turns out. And that's, that's so essential for us to do our work wholeheartedly with our best skills, with our best leadership. And then this is hard work. I mean, this is really challenging to to sit in confidence that I am doing this, the right work here. And then if it doesn't work, at least I have the, the really deep, meaningful reward of realizing, well, I tried, <laughs> I did the right thing. And it didn't work because it didn't work, not because of me, but because of external circumstances far beyond my control. And this kind of uh, clarity about what is the right work for me is much more powerful than putting a lot of my dreams and visions and possibilities for what I hope will happen 
but then doesn't. And then I have to deal with my negative reaction. So working beyond hope and fear for me is discovering what is the right thing to do at any moment. And that's a liberating place, I have to say, and very foreign in most work environments. Yes. And if someone, again, was, was willing to step up and take that advice, what guidance might you have for them on how do, how, how do they know in this, in this chaotic world, how do they know what is the right thing to do? Oh, this again, I think, Chris, you're giving them giving us too much uh, space here to equivocate. Um, if you if you have values, that's sometimes an if right now. But if you have a sort of a sense of your life and what you want to contribute, and if you have really know what it's like to be there for people to be in a healthy relationship, and these are all pretty big ifs for some people now, um, then the right work will further your values. It will demonstrate your values. It will be your best attempt to help someone or a situation based on your awareness of who people are and what the human spirit is. Um, we really give each other too much room for equivocation right now. And, and it's no wonder because where are you getting your moral ground from? And I use that word deliberately. It used to be from church. It used to be from one spirituality. Uh, now it's as uh, fungible as anything. So what is, what is the ground on which you stand? And once you know that, what do you really have faith in from your own experience about people and the human spirit and the future, what do you, what ground do you stand on? And then you, that helps you very clearly identify your right work. Then it's not a problem. Then the problem is, do I have enough courage yes. or is it right timed? I mean, you know, you don't want to become a, a Don Quixote uh, tilting at windmills. You actually want to use your smarts to decide when is right timing as well as what is right speech and what is right work. These are all terms from Buddhism, by the way. Some people may recognize them. I, uh, I have experienced it in my own personal life and my professional life. Uh, I agree with what you say, that when you know the ground you stand in, you're clear on your own values, whatever the challenges that you're facing, the decision that you need to make, you can make it with a gr much greater sense of, of peace, inner peace, regardless of how things turn out. And exactly. I, I think that clarity is, I agree with you as well, that some people... Uh, are clear on their values. Unfortunately, many, many, many people aren't. And that's a great body of work that I know a lot of people are doing great work in to help people get, get that clarity, especially in these yeah. challenging times. Yeah. Well, Margaret, before I ask the final question, uh, how could someone learn more about your work and get in touch with you or your team? Go to my website. I mean, my website is set up to be rich in resources. It's just margaretwheatley.com. Wonderful. You can learn about well, the warrior work. You can read just about anything I've ever written. You can watch videos, not only of me, but videos that I think make me cheerful and glad to be a human being, other people's creative work. So that's that's the resource. Great. We'll make sure we have the, the links in our show notes. My final question for you, Margaret, today for your time on the Ignition Show is, what do you hope to ignite in the world? 
Yes. Well, of course, I'm not hoping. I'm doing. <laughs> good catch. Good doing, catch. Um, which I really love when Greta Thunberg uh, said that she doesn't hope for things. You act and your actions give you hope as a consequence mm -hmm. of acting. So I'm putting all of my efforts, energy, and love into summoning leaders to be warriors for the human spirit. And that's the work I hope to continue, pray to continue with good health until I leave the planet. Well, I, I, I appreciate uh, all the work that you do, as, as you know, thousands and thousands of people do. And there's no doubt that your continuing, continued efforts in that area um, is going to change. Um, change uh, even if it's one person at a time, it will make a difference. And so thank you very much, Margaret, for all the work that you do and for your time here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. That was Margaret Wheatley, a true voice of reason and a voice of sanity for chaotic times. You can find all the links in our show notes. As always, we want you to get the most of the time that you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learned. The most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned and found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect. That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you and what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, it's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned and what we took away from this conversation and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, Whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.